Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, February 24, 2023. The world marks the somber one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, tens of thousands of lives lost, devastating destruction, and a war that shows no sign of ending soon. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky promising Ukraine will be victorious this year. United Nations Security Council holding a meeting on the anniversary. Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying that Russia cannot be allowed to make such brutalization of another country the norm. And the Russian ambassador accusing Ukraine of having started the war against Russian-speaking Ukrainians back in 2014. We'll also hear from the Pentagon, another U.S. military aid package for Ukraine announced, and from Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is part of a House Republican faction opposing U.S. support for Ukraine. Also today, former National Security Advisor John Bolton asked about the briefing he got from the Biden administration on Chinese spy balloons that crossed the U.S. during the Trump administration. Former President George W. Bush comes to Washington for the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, a program that began during his presidency. Vice President Kamala Harris talks about the legal fight over access to abortion pills. And the TSA Administrator David Bukowski on the record number of firearms being seized at airport checkpoints. This reporting from United Press International, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Friday declared the year since Russia invaded his nation a year of invincibility and said his forces would strive for victory. He held a resolve and unity of the Ukrainian people, who he said have endured all threats. In hopes of bringing an end to the war, United Nations member states voted overwhelmingly Thursday to adopt the draft resolution calling for a ceasefire in Ukraine, during an emergency meeting of the General Assembly. Neither side, however, has shown any sign of backing down, with Russian President Vladimir Putin maintaining his claim that Russia was forced into the invasion of Ukraine in order to protect what he described as historically Russian lands. He mentioned that in his annual State of the Nation address on Monday, that reporting from UPI. Here's President Zelensky in a posted video. Great nation of great Ukraine. A year ago on this day, from this same place around 7 in the morning, I addressed you with a brief statement lasting only 67 seconds. We will defeat all threats, shelling, bombs, missiles, kamikaze drones, blackouts, cold. We are stronger than all this. It was a year of endurance. A year of compassion, a year of bravery, a year of pain, a year of hope, a year of perseverance, a year of unity, a year of invincibility, a fierce year of invincibility. Its main conclusion is that we have survived, we have not been defeated, and we will do everything to win this year. Glory to Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, a video message, that audio and the interpretation through the Sun newspaper in Great Britain. President Zelensky also oversaw ceremonies today in Kyiv, presenting the Hero of Ukraine Medal and other awards to Ukrainian defenders and expressing his gratitude to all Ukrainians who are doing everything they can to oppose Russian aggression. Also holding a moment of silence for those killed and wounded in the year-long war. 
The estimates are over 100,000 Ukrainians dead or injured. That's military. Civilians killed in Ukraine, wide-ranging estimates from 8,000 to over 100,000. And on the Russian side, Western intelligence agencies say that the number of Russian soldiers killed could be in the 200,000 range. The Daily Mail newspaper writes, the United Nations Security Council held a minute's silence on Friday after Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, accused Russia of genocide against his country. However, the silence was interrupted by Russia's U.S. envoy, who insisted that it was held for all those who perished in the conflict, including those since 2014. All lives are priceless, Russia's U.S. envoy Vasily Nebetsia said, who in the same session in New York City accused the West of using the Security Council to push its own agenda. That from the Daily Mail. C-SPAN covered today's U.N. Security Council meeting. Here is the Ukrainian Foreign Minister, Dmitry Kuleba. Ukraine will resist, as it has done so far, and Ukraine will win. Putin is going to lose much sooner than he thinks. Here is what Russian officials and servicemen have to know. You think you would get away with what you did? No. You will end up on trial. You will be testifying how strongly you were opposed to the aggression and how you just followed orders. You think that the world will get tired of supporting Ukraine? The support will only get stronger. You think that Ukraine will eventually tire of defending itself? The more more and the longer you will keep attacking Ukraine, the more resolve we will have and the more humiliating your defeat will be. Dear colleagues, Russian propaganda has fabricated this hypocritical narrative that supplying Ukraine with weapons fuels the war. Ukraine indeed needs weapons, just as a firefighter needs water to extinguish a fire. The fire that is destroying your home and killing innocent people. The sooner and the more we get, the sooner the fire will be extinguished. Arming a country that defends itself from the aggression is absolutely legitimate and is an act of defending the UN Charter. On the contrary, Helping an aggressor is illegitimate and defies the Charter. Any supply of weapons or military equipment to Russia means complicity in the trampling of the UN Charter. If you give weapons to Russia, you commit a crime. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba at today's UN Security Council meeting in New York City. The Polish Prime Minister announcing in a visit to Kyiv that Poland has delivered the first of its modern Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, saying, I came here not only with a word of support, uh, Poland as the first European country symbolically hands over to you, the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, the first four Polish Leopard tanks we will deliver more and urge our EU and NATO partners to do the same. More from the UN Security Council Meeting in New York, Russian ambassador to the U.N. Vasily Nebetsia saying that while Russia's special military operation, that's the name he gives it, is one year old, the war in Ukraine, he says, has been going on since 2014 when Ukraine attacked Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. 
Any expression using the word peace, which are being disingenuously used, including today by high representatives of Ukraine and Western countries, what is meant is actually something completely different. What is meant is a capitulation of Russia and inflicting a strategic defeat on Russia, ideally followed by the disintegration of the country and redrawing the territories it, um, it, it includes. These two goals of Western interference in Ukrainian affairs were clearly displayed, by the way, almost exactly nine years ago on the day of the Maidan anti-constitutional coup on the 21st of February 2014. And people didn't hide them from the very beginning. And these are exactly the goals which resulted in the fact that on our borders we have a hostile nationalistic Russophobic regime which decided that they would resolve the Ukrainian issue with zeal. Our British colleague yesterday, when uh, um, she spoke in the General Assembly and she criticized the uh, Belarus-submitted amendments to the draft resolution, she stated then that the amendments equate the aggressor and the victim. Are you not at all concerned by the fact that your victim has uh, is up to um, its elbows in blood and Nazi tattoos and the nine-year-old period of elimination of Russian speaking citizens in Donbass. Do you think it's normal? Why do you think it's normal for Ukraine to send guns and tanks against unarmed civilians in the east and bomb them only because those people do not want to give up on their own identity? Because that is exactly what the Kiev regime did in the summer of 2014. And it was then that the internal Ukrainian armed conflict erupted. Do you think that we were supposed to resign ourselves to this situation? Vasily Nebedzia is the Russian ambassador to the United Nations at today's UN Security Council meeting. You can find the full meeting at our website, cspan.org, our video library. President Joe Biden meeting virtually today with the other leaders of the group of seven or G7 nations, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and United Kingdom. They also had in meeting at the Today, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky, he joined them. A joint statement from the group saying they reaffirm our unwavering support for Ukraine for as long as it takes. They write Russia's heinous attacks over the last 365 days have laid bare the cruelty of the ongoing aggression. We commit to intensifying our diplomatic, financial and military support for Ukraine to increase the cost to Russia and those supporting its war effort and to continue to counter the negative impacts of the war on the rest of the world, particularly on the most vulnerable people. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken represented the United States at today's U.N. Security Council meeting and talking about one year of war. One year and one week ago, on February 17th, 2022, I warned this council that Russia was planning to invade Ukraine. I said that Russia would manufacture a pretext and then use missiles, tanks, soldiers, cyber attacks to strike pre-identified targets, including Kyiv, with the aim of toppling Ukraine's democratically elected government. Russia's representative, the same representative who will speak today, called these, and I quote, groundless accusations. Seven days later, on February 24th, 2022, Russia launched its full-scale invasion. Due to fierce resistance by Ukraine's defenders, President Putin failed in his primary objective 
to conquer Ukraine, end its existence as an independent country, and absorb it into Russia. Then he dusted off his Crimea playbook from 2014. He called snap referenda in four occupied parts of Ukraine, deported Ukrainians, bust in Russians, held sham votes at gunpoint, and then manipulated the results to claim near unanimous support for joining the Russian Federation. When President Putin couldn't break the Ukrainian military, he intensified efforts to break Ukrainian spirit. Over the last year, Russia has killed tens of thousands of Ukrainian men, women, and children, uprooted more than 13 million people from their homes, destroyed more than half of the country's energy grid, bombed more than 700 hospitals, 2,600 schools, and abducted at least 6,000 Ukrainian children some as young as four months old, and relocated them to Russia. And yet, the spirit of the Ukrainians remains unbroken. If anything, it's stronger than ever. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the UN Security Council meeting in New York City. The White House today announcing new sanctions against Russians, 200 total individuals and entities in Russia, a Forbes article summarizing that the U.S. Department of Commerce will take new actions to restrict exports of U.S. materials and technologies to Russia, blocking many companies in Russia and allied countries like China from purchasing materials like semiconductors, and will take new steps to block materials from Iranian drones from being used by the Russian military. Also, the White House will raise tariffs on certain Russian products being imported into the U.S., including metals, minerals, and chemical products, particularly aluminum. More from the Secretary of State Blinken at the U.N. Security Council. He says how this war turns out will be important for how the world deals with future military aggressions. It's easy to become numb to the horror, to lose our ability to feel shock and outrage. But we can never let the crimes Russia's committing become our new normal. Bucha is not normal. Mariupol is not normal. Irpin is not normal. Bombing schools and hospitals and apartment buildings to rubble is not normal. Stealing Ukrainian children from their families and giving them to people in Russia is not normal. We must not let President Putin's callous indifference to human life become our own. We must force ourselves to remember that behind every atrocity in this wretched war, in conflicts around the world, is a human being. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the United Nations Security Council in New York City. He also said that any calls for a temporary or unconditional ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine should be met with some skepticism and that a just and durable peace cannot allow Russia to rest and rearm. China, also a permanent member of the U.N. Security Council, and this week Secretary Blinken and other Biden administration officials warning that China is considering sending Russia weapons and equipment that could be used directly in the war in Ukraine. China's deputy ambassador to the U.N., Dai Bing, in his speech today didn't mention that specifically. He did talk about what it will take in China's view to bring the war to an end. When handling and solving international disputes, universally 
recognized international law, including the purposes and principles of the UN Charter, must be upheld. The sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of all countries must be effectively guaranteed. Observing universally recognized international law and the basic norms governing international relations bears on the stability of the international system and international fairness and justice. They should be equally and uniformly applied in every place and on every issue without exception. Some country, while stressing sovereignty and territorial integrity on the Ukraine issue, is blatantly interfering in other countries' internal affairs and undermining their sovereignty and territorial integrity. This reveals its double standard at full display. The international community is clear-eyed about this. Second. To facilitate a political solution to the Ukraine issue, there is a need to pursue common security. Security is not an exclusive right enjoyed only by some countries. The security of a country should not be pursued at the expense of others. Strengthening or even expanding military blocks will only undermine regional security and will never bring about peace. Russia, Ukraine, and European countries are neighbors that cannot physically move away. To realize lasting peace and stability in Europe, the Cold War mentality and bloc confrontation must be abandoned, and the legitimate security concerns of all countries must be taken seriously and addressed properly so as to build a balanced, effective, and sustainable regional security architecture. Third, conflicts have no winners. Long-term diplomatic negotiations is the only right way to solve the Ukraine crisis. The international community should promote peace and talks with the highest sense of urgency and work to create enabling factors and platforms for the resumption of negotiation. The Chinese Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations Dai Bing at the UN Security Council meeting today in New York City. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saying that the existence of this Chinese peace plan is a positive thing. And he also says that he plans to meet sometime in the future with the Chinese President Xi Jinping and, quote, I believe this will be beneficial for our countries and for security in the world. The Biden administration announcing another $10 billion in aid to Ukraine to support Ukraine's government's budget and bolster Ukraine's energy security amid Russian attacks on its critical infrastructure. And the Biden administration with another $2 billion in military aid to Ukraine, including air defense systems, ammunition for rockets, systems, mine clearing equipment and communications. Details today from the Pentagon Press Secretary, Pat Ryder. Today marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine. And to quote Secretary Austin's statement issued earlier today, quote, this solemn anniversary is an opportunity for all who believe in freedom, rules, and sovereignty to recommit ourselves to supporting Ukraine's brave defenders for the long haul and recall that the stakes of Russia's war stretch far beyond Ukraine. Alongside our international allies and partners, we remain committed to supporting the Ukrainian people with the security assistance they need to defend their nation and take back their sovereign territory. And we will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. And another demonstration of our enduring commitment, earlier today, the Department of Defense announced $2 billion in additional security assistance for Ukraine under the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. The security assistance package reaffirms the steadfast support of the United States for Ukraine by committing additional unmanned aerial systems and counter UAS and electronic warfare detection equipment, as well as critical ammunition stocks for artillery and precision fires capabilities 
that will bolster Ukraine's ability to repel Russian aggression. The Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, who is also an Air Force Brigadier General, today in the Pentagon briefing room. A reporter asked him about that phrase that he used on the U.S. commitment to Ukraine, as long as it takes. It's not a figure of speech, I think, when the United States administration says, for as long as it takes. It's literally for as long as it takes. The war goes on, right? Yeah, so I guess, you know, the the question here is, um, what happens next if Russia is allowed to succeed? Right. It, it's not going to stop it at Ukraine uh, and it's going to further embolden other um, authoritarian regimes in terms of what they can accomplish simply by uh, using force to eliminate countries around them. And so um, I think what we would see is an increase in the cost of uh, trying to defend democracy. I think what we would see is an increase in needless suffering uh, and innocent lives lost uh, and the extinguishing of uh, freedom and democracy in countries that that uh, are unable to defend themselves. Uh, so, so again, as the president has said, as Secretary Austin has said, we are committed to supporting Ukraine in their fight because the implications, not only is it the right thing to do, but the implications extend well beyond Ukraine in terms of what it means for the international community and what it means for democracy and what it means for freedom. The Pentagon Press Secretary and Air Force Brigadier General Pat Ryder with reporters in the Pentagon briefing room. A CNN article from earlier this week begins as the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine approaches. The Republican Party finds itself bitterly divided on Capitol Hill over whether the U.S. should continue aiding Ukraine, a dispute that is only expected to intensify in the months ahead, even as GOP leaders have sought to downplay it. On Tuesday, a group of House Republicans led a congressional delegation to Ukraine to reaffirm the United States' commitment to the war-torn nation after promoting a similar message at the Global Munich Security Conference over the weekend. But back home, the GOP's isolationist wing spent the week publicly bashing President Joe Biden's surprise visit to Ukraine and re-upped their calls to end military and financial aid to the country. That from CNN. On Thursday night, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, was interviewed on Fox News. The problem is that the warmongers and our supreme leaders in the Biden administration are so clueless, they are so stupid, and they are so disconnected with what the American people want that they are literally going to lead us into World War III. And I don't want to be on that train anymore. I am not interested in it, and neither is anyone else. You're one of the few people that tells the truth like the American people feel and talk and think on television uh, that I ever see telling the truth. And I'm trying to say the same thing in Congress, but yet we're the ones that are supposed to be for Putin. I don't think so. You know who's for China is the Biden administration and the idiots that I work with in Congress that are leading us into World War III and going to hurt America like never before. Yeah, when an MSNBC anchor accuses you of hating America, <laughs> you, you know maybe it's not, it's not an entirely sincere attack. Um, are you making any headway? I mean, we really are moving towards something awful. I don't think that's an overstatement at all. Do you see any of your colleagues on the Republican side in the House coming around to your position? Well, I'll be introducing a resolution of inquiry on, on Friday, actually, tomorrow. And this is something I introduced in the previous Congress. 
every single Republican, including Mike McCall, voted in favor for it. So I'll be introducing that on Friday. Let me tell you what it's going to do. It's going to force Congress to give, give the American people an audit. And that is exactly what the American people need, an audit of Ukraine. Because we have no idea where all this money's going. I mean, we know that it's paying for pensions for Ukrainian uh, leaders and people in their government, while people in East Palestine are suffering from basically a nuclear bomb that exploded in their city. We, we know that our American dollars are paying for aid in Russia, or, I mean, I'm sorry, in Ukraine, but we don't know where that's going. So I'm, I'm introducing this resolution. I'm looking forward to seeing my Republican colleagues support it. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, on Fox News Channel Thursday night with host Tucker Carlson. A Fox News article today has this. National Security Council Strategic Communications Coordinator John Kirby told reporters in a White House briefing on Friday that there is no indication that any of the billions of dollars in defense aid the U.S. has sent to Ukraine has been misplaced or stolen as GOP lawmakers push for an audit. John Kirby said, we have seen no indication to date that any of the resources or weapons we provided to Ukraine have been misused, misplaced, stolen, sold on the black market or captured by the Russians. You're listening to Washington Today. John Bolton, former National Security Advisor under former President Donald Trump, asked today about the Biden administration's briefing he got last week about Chinese spy balloons that flew into U.S. airspace during the Trump administration. A political article explains that after a Chinese spy balloon traversed the United States a few weeks ago, the Biden administration claims similar intrusions occurred three times while Donald Trump was in office and once previously with Joe Biden in charge. John Bolton and his Trump administration colleagues initially rejected that premise, noting that they had never been briefed when they were in the administration. That was from Politico. Here's John Bolton interviewed today by Washington Post opinions editor at large, Michael Duffy. You'd said on the record before the briefing that you were 100 percent certain that no balloons had entered U.S. airspace while you were in office in the Trump administration. Is that still your position after the briefing? Well, I think I said I was 100 percent certain nobody had told us that the balloons had entered. And I don't want to get into the specifics of it, uh, unlike some people in the administration, because because that I think that would reveal more than the Chinese than we want. Uh, but there are always in increases and improvements we can make in our detection capabilities and in our assessment and better coordination among uh, our intelligence agencies and uh, uh, and capabilities. I, I think the mistake here, uh, though, was a mistake of policy. I think when this 200-foot-high balloon was sent, as the administration itself said, from the time it was launched from Hainan Island, south of the Chinese mainland, all the way up to Alaska, that that was enough evidence to have said to the Chinese, you've got one of your balloons coming our way and you either turn it around or we're gonna shoot it down. And we should have done that before it crossed uh, over our shores, over onto uh, mainland Alaska. We should not have let it go any further than that. Last question on the balloons. What what was it they were actually looking at? In your well, I don't, I don't yeah, I, I don't think we know for sure. I think that mission could have had uh, uh, a number of uh, rationales for it. You know, one administration theory floated to show that uh, uh, 
uh, happy times are here again was maybe the balloon had just been you know blown off course. Uh, well, okay, if we'd called the Chinese up and said your balloon is off course, if you have directional capability, you should exercise it right now. I don't uh, know of any evidence that we did that, but but part of the Chinese. Uh, uh, feeling even if the balloon was blown off course is let's let's see if it drifts over the United States. Let's see if they find it. And if they do find it, let's see what they do with it. And and what they found was we let the thing just pass across the United States. Now, uh, that was a decided underreaction by the administration. It may be later we, we shot down Mrs. Smith's high school science class balloon uh, as an overreaction. Uh, but but the fact is, when a large unidentified object is heading toward the United States from a policy point of view, the presumption ought to be it's dangerous. Doesn't mean shoot first and ask questions later. But if you're not getting any response, in this case from China, where it came from, yes, I would shoot it down. John Bolton, former national security advisor in the Donald Trump administration, during a Washington Post interview today, virtual. The Globe and Mail newspaper in Canada has a story. The Canadian military found and retrieved Chinese monitoring buoys in the Arctic this past fall, a development whose public exposure adds another item to a list of pressing concerns about Beijing's interventions in Canadian affairs, including interference in recent federal elections. Washington Today continues in a moment. C-SPAN Now is a free mobile app featuring your unfiltered view of what's happening in Washington, live and on demand. Keep up with the day's biggest events with live streams of floor proceedings and hearings from the U.S. Congress, White House events, the courts, campaigns, and more from the world of politics, all at your fingertips. You can also stay current with the latest episodes of Washington Journal and find scheduling information for C-SPAN's TV networks and C-SPAN Radio, plus a variety of compelling podcasts. C-SPAN Now is available at the Apple Store and Google Play. Download it for free today. C-SPAN Now, your front row seat to Washington, anytime, anywhere. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and also on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. Dallas Morning News reports that two decades ago, President George W. Bush exhorted Congress to fund a new effort to address HIV in Africa, a scourge afflicting one-third of adults in the hardest-hit countries. Some $100 billion later, PEPFAR has saved 25 million lives and 5.5 million babies born HIV-free through efforts in more than 50 countries, the most successful public health initiative in history by a single country, as the likes of Bono and Bill Gates attested Friday. Former President George W. Bush traveled from Dallas to Washington, D.C. today to mark the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, which stands for President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. At a program hosted by the George W. Bush Presidential Center, he was interviewed by Condoleezza Rice, his former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, and sitting beside him, the former president of Tanzania. I don't really come to Washington often, President. And I'm, but I'm here to remind people that uh, American taxpayers' money is making a huge difference, a measurable difference in saving lives, 25 million people. Yet most people in America have no clue what we're talking about. So hopefully uh, this attempt today gets people listening, uh, President Kikwete. And the other thing is, is that I know uh, maybe some in Washington are listening, but this program needs to be funded. 
And for the skeptics, all I ask is look at the results. And uh, if, if the results don't impress you, then nothing will impress you. And so we, we, we're asking for the program to be refunded and to make sure that there's a lines of accountability between the spending of the money and those who spend it. And so anyway, that's why we're here. And I'm here because you're here. Thank you. Yeah. You know, he gave me a lion uh, when I went to visit in Tanzania. Not, not a live one. No, it was a dead one. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> but he had his stuff that's now in the Bush Library. Right. It's got a little name. It says, Kikwete. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, Mr. President, I'm going to ask you to start. I'll ask you quickly something. Uh, no, no, no. I've got this organized. I'm, I'm okay. moderating. Okay. I'm moderating. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Mr. President, yes. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to start about the origins of this. Okay. Uh, we have a lot of people who contributed to the origins of it. I see Tony Fauci down there and a number of other folks who were Josh Bolton in that Oval Office meeting when you decided that this was something that had to be done. So talk about your own personal commitment. Yeah, so it's a little self-serving on her part because uh, she walked in the Oval Office. And, and Fraser is here. Yeah, okay. Anyway, she walked in the Oval, walked in the Oval Office and said, are you aware there's a pandemic destroying an entire generation of the people of, of uh, in the continent of Africa? I said, you know, when you're president, you hear a lot of hyperbole. And I said, prove it. And she did. And I, had, I, I believe that uh, human life is precious and we're all God's children. That's what I said when I was campaigning. And, and I meant it. And... Uh, we also operated on this, to whom much is given, much is required. And, you know, we're an unbelievably wealthy nation, and yet there are people, a generation is being destroyed. And so that was the genesis. And, uh, you know, a lot of skeptics, but we put together a plan that worked and had a hell of a team, many of whom are here, really good people, motivated by one thing, human life. And then we found partners on the continent of Africa, and this is the best one right here. Former President George W. Bush with the former president of Tanzania and also former U.S. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor in the Bush administration, Condoleezza Rice, at today's 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, held in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Institute of Peace. More from the Dallas Morning News article. Funding began with $15 billion over five years and grew to $7 billion annually. Congress has reauthorized it three times. Former President Bush called for lawmakers to do so again this year. Worldwide, it has provided antiretroviral therapy to 20.1 million people, 30.3 million voluntary male circumcisions, a procedure that reduces spread of HIV, and support of 7 to 7.3 million orphans. Bono, musician and activist, also among the speakers today, he did this by video, and he talked about working with former President George W. Bush to get PEPFAR going in 2003. No excuses, was the president's mantra. I want real authorizations, real appropriations. We'll get the drugs on bicycles and motorcycles if we have to. Uh, permission to make your life a misery, sir? If that's what it takes, go ahead, the president replied. But if you wouldn't mind... Letting me finish my own sentences in my own office. I am the president of the United States. I think the office was yellow and oval. Anyway, I should have been more humble, but 
this Irishman is very humbled today by the most eloquent expression of American values anyone can think of in recent times. That's right. The most brilliant outpouring of American ingenuity. That is PEPFAR. Yeah, it's an okay acronym for the single largest health intervention in the history of fighting a single disease before COVID. It's long-term success though. It's long-term success depends on something much more mundane. Partnership between the US and Africa, between activists and experts, and more importantly in these days, we search for civility. PEPFAR is a partnership between two political parties who thought they had lost the habit of working together or even getting along. You see, we find common ground reaching for higher ground. But as you know, the ground is shifting. So you'll be hearing from us at the One Campaign and Red about the upcoming authorization. We need this. Bono, musician and activist, a video address to today's 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, the program held in Washington, D.C., held by the George W. Bush Presidential Center, and in attendance, the former president. PEPFAR also highlighted in First Lady Jill Biden's trip to Namibia. Associated Press reporting that nearly an hour on Thursday she spent at Hope Initiative's Southern Africa, where she listened to moving testimonials from participants in the non-governmental organization's programs. Hope Initiative Southern Africa works to end poverty and hunger in marginalized communities in the region. Some of its programs, including ones to prevent new HIV infections and gender-based violence, receive funding through PEPFAR. That from AP. Today, Joe Biden also giving a speech at the Namibia University of Science and Technology to students there talking about democracy. We face many of the same challenges from climate change to economic inequality to strengthening democracy, which is why the U.S. African Leader Summit was held in Washington, D.C., in December because it was so important to him. And it's why I'm proud to be standing here, standing with a strong democracy. And as Monica said yesterday, a young democracy working together. As Joe said at the summit, African voices, African leadership, and African innovation are all critical to addressing the most pressing global challenges and realizing the vision we all share. First Lady Jill Biden at Namibia University of Science and Technology. Namibia is a democracy, but one party has been in power since the country gained its independence from South Africa in 1990. One other note from the Associated Press article on this visit, it was a big hit with scores of giddy children who crowded around her Thursday as she handed out boxes of White House M&Ms. First Lady Jill Biden's second stop on a trip is Kenya. Today she took part in a women's empowerment reception, emphasizing that she too is a working woman, continuing to teach college courses, even as serving as First Lady. 
This is Washington Today, a story from Reuters. Vice President Kamala Harris defended the abortion drug, calling attacks against it another attempt to attack fundamental rights in the United States as some activist groups work to end American sales of the pill. Anti-abortion groups have brought cases against the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, claiming the agency used an improper process to approve the drug in 2000 and did not adequately consider its safety for minors. Medication abortion accounts for about half of all U.S. abortions. The vice president meeting with reproductive rights groups at the White House. And we convened today because post the Dobbs decision, we are now in a situation where there is an attempt um, to further attack fundamental rights to health care in that there is an attack that has been um, placed against the ability of of doctors to prescribe and for people to receive uh, medication to allow them to make decisions about their reproductive health. That medication is called mifepristone. It is a drug that is used to perform medication abortion. It is FDA approved and was approved 20 years ago after a strenuous, peer-reviewed process of determining that it is safe and appropriate for its intended use. But there are now partisan and political attacks attempting to question the legitimacy of a group of scientists and doctors who have studied the significance of this drug, there is now an attempt by politicians to remove it from the ability of doctors to prescribe and the ability of people to receive. Vice President Kamala Harris at today's meeting at the White House with reproductive rights activists. The group Alliance Defending Freedom brought a lawsuit in the Northern District of Texas against the FDA's approval of this drug. If the suit is successful, manufacturers will be prohibited from shipping it even to states where abortion is legal. Alliance Defending Freedom putting out a statement a couple of weeks ago as the suit was making its way through. It says in 2000, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the chemical abortion drugs by characterizing pregnancy as an illness and arguing that these drugs provide a meaningful therapeutic benefit. The FDA's approval of chemical abortion drugs has always stood on shaky legal and moral ground. And after years of evading responsibility, it's time for the government to do what it's legally required to do, protect the health and safety of vulnerable women and girls. That from Alliance Defending Freedom. The head of the TSA, Transportation Security Administration, David Bukowski, talking today about the number of firearms seized at airport checkpoints last year, 18 per day or so. It's an all-time high. The administrator was at the American Bar Association Conference on Air and Space today in Washington. You might have seen some media releases that we've um, we put out recently. Um, in, in calendar year 2022, um, TSA officers detected um, 6,542 firearms in our checkpoints. That's, a bi- that's the biggest number ever. The next biggest year was the year before. So the trend is, is continuing to go up. Of that 6,500 number, 88% were loaded. Um, and, and what passengers usually say is, um, geez, I forgot I had that firearm in my carry-on bag. 
that's another problem, right? So um, this is an area of, of keen concern um, for us. We have just increased the fine uh, for carrying firearms. It's a civil penalty. We pr pursue civil penalty action on every single one of these cases um, that, that we encounter. Um, if you're a pre-check passenger, you'll lose pre-check eligibility for five years. If you're not a pre-check passenger, you won't be eligible for pre-check um, for five years. Um, and you know, so we're, we're working as hard as we can to bring these numbers down. A lot of public messaging. We're finding public messaging only goes so far. Because um, uh, you know, if it was really effective, we wouldn't see these numbers going up um, the way they are. But key, key area of concern, just wanted to highlight that to you. The TSA Administrator David Bukowski at an American Bar Association conference on air and space law held today in Washington, D.C. An Associated Press article on this reads, with the exception of pandemic disrupted 2020, the number of weapons intercepted at airport checkpoints has climbed every year since 2010. Experts don't think this is an epidemic of would-be hijackers. Nearly everyone caught claims were forgotten. They had a gun with them. But they emphasize the danger even one gun can pose in the wrong hands on a plane or at a checkpoint. And the top 10 list for gun interceptions in 2022, Dallas, Austin, and Houston in Texas, three airports in Florida, plus Nashville, Tennessee, Atlanta, Phoenix, and Denver. And the repercussions vary depending on local and state laws. The person may be arrested and have the gun confiscated, but sometimes they're allowed to give the gun to a companion not flying with them and continue on their way. That from Associated Press. Wall Street today, the Dow down 336, S&P down 42, Nasdaq down 195. CNN Business reports the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation gauge heating up unexpectedly in January, as did consumer spending, showing the continued strength of the U.S. economy and that rising prices won't be so easily defeated. Inflation picked up speed in January as the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index rose 5.4% from a year earlier, the Commerce Department's Bureau of Economic Analysis reported Friday. In December, prices rose 5.3% annually. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night and weekend. Washington Journal. Every day we're taking your calls live, on the air, on the news of the day, and we'll discuss policy issues that impact you. Coming up Saturday morning, Vince Hall of the advocacy organization Feeding America discusses the March 1st end of extended federal emergency food assistance and the debate to cut food stamp benefits. And Jeff Gwynn, author of Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage, discusses the 1993 siege of the Branch Davidian compound near Waco, Texas, plus the aftermath and legacy of that event. Watch Washington Journal live at 7 Eastern Saturday morning on C-SPAN or on C-SPAN Now, our free mobile app. Join the discussion with your phone calls, Facebook comments, text messages, and tweets. Next, four conversations from C-SPAN's series of over 40 interviews with new members of the 118th Congress. C-SPAN spoke with the new members about their upbringings, careers, and political philosophies. Democrat Jared Moskowitz represents Florida's 23rd Congressional District and is one of the nearly 80 new House members in the 118th Congress. 
He told C-SPAN about how his parents inspired his early interest in politics, his time in Florida's state legislature, and his other previous work before coming to Capitol Hill. Well, I mean, my, the last job I had, I was a county commissioner in, in, you know, in Broward County, where I'm from. Before that, I was the director of emergency management for the state of Florida in charge of hurricane response and the first 18 months of the COVID response for the, for the state of Florida. Before that, I was in the state legislature for six years. I had the horrible mass shooting in the city of Parkland in my hometown at my high school, Marjorie Stillman Douglas, where I graduated from. And before that, I was on the city commission in the city of Parkland uh, when I was in law school. How do you plan to use all those experiences that you just listed as a member of Congress and the work that you'll do here? Well, I mean, what you, what you realize is that, you know, there are decisions you make up here have different impacts. How does it impact local government? How does it impact county government? What are their challenges? What are they dealing with? So, you know, it was no different than when I served in the Florida legislature. There are people there that had no local government experience. They made decisions. They thought they understood how local government worked and they didn't. The same thing will be up here for people who don't have that experience. And so explaining to them, hey, how this decision would affect local government because this is what local government cares about, I think that's important. The emergency management experience, I'm the only emergency management director elected in Congress right now. I'm the only one who ran a COVID operation. I'm the only one who ran a logistics operation. Understanding our competitiveness, I had to depend on China for PPE, for you know, all sorts of masks and gowns and gloves, for you know, n nasal oxygen. Uh, you know, my, my test kits came out of Italy. Uh, we had to run a, you know, a national logistics operation flying stuff in because we couldn't get that stuff in country. So working on, you know, getting manufacturing so that, you know, in the next disaster, we don't have to depend on the world for supplies. We should be able to be, be self-sufficient. So I think that's how that experience also will help. And then obviously being, uh, you know, doing hurricanes and doing uh, emergency management in the private sector for 10 years, I think will also help when we have disasters around the country to depoliticize that. We have these supplementals that come out and sometimes states fight over funding. You know, we really want to make sure that we, we help folks in the time of need and that that's a federal issue. You know, the country has to come together when we have those disasters. And so trying to depoliticize emergency management, especially how political COVID became, I don't want that to be something that, you know, infects hurricane response or tornado response, earthquake, fires, floods, same thing. Many people note the grueling schedule of a member of Congress, but that doesn't sound like it'll be a problem for you. Yeah, they have no idea what a grueling schedule is like. Try being the emergency management director in the first 50 state disaster in American history where you're competing with everybody for life-saving supplies other than Antarctica. So, you know, that was 20-hour days, level one in an EOC. I didn't go home for five months. Uh, and so, you know, I, I kind of got conditioned to do that. This is, dif this is different. The challenges here are different. I mean, quite frankly, you spend a lot of time not legislating. Uh, you spend a lot of time trying to meet members, trying to build relationships, meeting with constituency groups, traveling back and forth, uh, going home, raising money, uh, which is a huge aspect of what we do here. Like the very day you get elected, they're like, now start running for re-election. You're like, well, I have stuff I want to do first. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, again, being that emergency management director and understanding that pace, uh, I think will be helpful uh, as I serve up here in Congress. You've also worked for other politicians. You were an intern for Al Gore. Yeah, so when I went to GW, I went to college in Washington, D.C., I was that weird kid who in high school knew, like, oh, I wanted to go into government service. I didn't know how it would, how it would all work out, quite frankly. 
Uh, and so I got an opportunity to work in the last six months of the Clinton administration as a freshman in, in Al Gore's office in the old executive building. I was there the night he won the election and then the balloons came down and then we had to pick the balloons back up because as we know, it didn't really work out. Uh, and so uh, it was a great, uh, a great experience though. Do you come from a, a, a political family? Yeah, we were very political in the family. My dad was very active in, in local politics in Broward County and taking me to different you know, sort of political events. So I got exposed to that very early, but I was fascinated about people who wanted to go into government to help people's lives, to, to, to make a difference, to be in the room uh, when, when decisions were being made. And so, you know, I got elected when I was 25. I was a second year law student. 15 years later, I'm now uh, in Congress, many different jobs along the way. In fact, working for people from different political parties, which nowadays is, is obviously very unique. Um, and so, you know, my journey's been different. I've been dealing, you know, didn't know that I would become a, you know, a, you know, a director of emergency management and take over a state agency. Didn't know that, you know, the high school I graduated from would have one of the nation's largest mass shootings. Parents would visit their kids, uh, you know, that in a cemetery and all they did was send their kids to school that day and the kids didn't come home. And so, uh, you realize that this stuff matters. The decisions we make here matters. Government has to work when government fails it has repercussions. And so while people, some people up here to participate in the circus and you know, grift off of being a congressman, I'm up here to do real work to try to help the American people. Republican Jen Kiggins is one of the nearly 80 new members of the 118th Congress, representing Virginia's 2nd District, which includes Naval Station Norfolk, the world's largest naval station. She told C-SPAN about her political influences, her previous work as a nurse, and why she wears a pin with wings along with her congressional member pin. So I served for 10 of the best years of my life as a Navy pilot, as a helicopter pilot. Uh, I flew H-46s and H-3 helicopters uh, stationed in Norfolk and at NAS Oceana, which is in Virginia Beach. So uh, it was just a great time in my life. Uh, my dad was a Green Beret in the Army and I I was on an NROTC scholarship for college and so chose to fly the year that women could fly in combat, 1993, and, uh, and it was just a great experience serving the country, being at the tip of the spear. My husband is a retired F-18 pilot and I have children who serve now too, so it's, a, it's an important part of my life and an important part of who I am as, as a person and as a legislator. How did you decide to become a pilot? I mean, what was it that made you want to pursue that? Just that service to country. I think it's very important if we lead the country that we know how to serve the country. And politics is really about is a service job as well. So being a, a representative of my district is is another way for me to serve. And I think my whole life has really been about service, service to country as a Navy pilot, service to my family as a mother, and then I was a nurse practitioner, so service to my community uh, and to our older and greatest generation as a nurse practitioner. So what a better next step for me to serve, to serve my country than as a representative for Congress. How did being a pilot shape who you are? So really just instilled a love of country and understanding how to do a mission and what the mission is for the country. And I want what's best for America and I understand the importance of a strong military. Uh, it really motivates me when I think of my priorities, especially legislatively. Uh, I know that deterrence is our best form of preserving peace. Uh, so that's a priority of mine, and serving on the Armed Services Committee is another way for me to do that. But you know, my, my children will inherit this Navy. My son's in the Naval Academy. I have another son in Navy ROTC at VMI. So my, my children are inheriting this Navy, this military, along with their friends. So I want it to be strong. I want them to inherit a peaceful world uh, that they can live and raise their families in. But I want them to be proud of their military. So, so it, really, it really shapes who I am. And just that patriotism and love of country, that's what my years in the military really 
uh, did for me, and I carry with that, you know, throughout my life with me. Where were you deployed to, and when? So I deployed a couple times to the Persian Gulf. I uh, did two deployments. One was on a on the USS Seattle, where you did a lot of vertical replenishment in H-46, uh, and then I also deployed on the USS Inchon, which we were more of a search and rescue. Uh, capacity for an H-53 squadron and then my last tour in the Navy was search and rescue at NAS Oceana so for the master jet base on the East Coast. That was 10 years of your life. When did That's when were you a nurse practitioner? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a long story. Yeah, so, so I served for 10 years and then I got out of the Navy. We started to have children uh, and we were deployed back to back during our active duty time with my husband so it was challenging and and I got out to raise my kids, which was another rewarding yet very hard job to be a stay-at-home mom. I had a GI Bill that was burning a hole in my pocket, and, and my mother is a nurse. I have a brother who's a nurse, and I had grandparents that just made really great impact on my life. One of my set of grandparents were aged in a nursing home, had Alzheimer's disease, so I knew I wanted to serve that, that patient population, those older adults who are often voiceless uh, in government especially, but I went back to school using my GI Bill to nursing school and then to Vanderbilt to become a geriatric nurse practitioner where I've been able to practice in long-term care, assisted living. I've done some home health and hospice, which I really loved, uh, and memory care and working just with frail elderly and cognitive impairments. So excited to, to advocate for them here in Congress. I was able to do that in the state legislature and just really excited to be their voice again. And then when did you run for your first public office? So that was 2019, and that was in Virginia. It was the year of the blue wave. We saw a lot of Democrat women, especially, that were running and winning elections. And there really were no Republican women that were, that were stepping up, especially veteran women. So I felt very underrepresented in government. And the state senator for my district kind of retired all of a sudden, and the seat was open. So, and, and I hated what I saw on television. I used to yell at the TV from my couch. I just hated the division and the negativity on the news. So I decided to get off my couch and literally Google how you get on a ballot and, and really just worked very, very hard that year and a tough year for Republicans to win in state elections. And, and we won and showed up in the state Senate as the only new Republican that year. And, and I sat in the minority in Virginia for a few years and I uh, really learned a lot of lessons about governing, about bipartisanship, about how to get things done in the minority. And uh, three of the, again, great years of my life, uh, but really prepared me well for my, my current job here in Congress. And what made you decide to run for this seat? So one big thing that really this was a motivating factor for me was that uh, I felt like we we were weak. We were weak in our military, and for me, just my district is so veteran heavy, so heavy in our active duty, you know, population. But also, our military families live there uh, as a military spouse, as a military mom. You know, I couldn't do that on the state level. I could do a lot of work with with not only healthcare, but with our veteran affairs type legislation, but. Just being able to impact change for our active duty military, working with the Department of Defense and with our Navy, I, I want to restore that strength for our military. I want, again, for them to be proud. You know, I think a lot of veterans that ran this cycle, we watched the Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, that was an embarrassment for us. It was really hard to watch what that did to our military. And I know that that impacted our reputation throughout the world. And if we don't have world peace, we have nothing, right? So for me, it's all really about restoring that strength for our military. Democrat Marie Glusenkamp-Perez represents Washington's 3rd Congressional District and won one of 22's closest races. She told C-SPAN about the blue-collar bent of her district, why she decided to run, and about the business she and her husband own and operate in nearby Portland, Oregon. My husband and I own an auto repair and a machine shop, so work in the trades. And you know how to fix cars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not a great mechanic, more like a lube tech, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And why did you decide to run for office? Well, um, I mean, for one thing, I think we're all hungry to see a Congress that looks more like America. And it was kind of a unique set of circumstances where my um, predecessor uh, was one of the Republicans who had uh, voted to impeach Trump. And as a result, she was primaried by a ton of Republicans. They were all vying for Trump's endorsement, and they were just like going so far right. And of course, the most right of them got the endorsement. Um, and I really didn't feel like they represented the values of my community. And I feel like, you know, the response to the sort of MAGA vitriol that can come up is, is you know, it, it comes more, you know, from rural communities. You know, the response has got to come from the trades. It's, um, I, I feel like so often we're sort of talked over and the Democratic Party often kind of turns to um, academics and, you know, lawyers to answer these questions for us. And I'm, I'm really tired of that. So and you so, yeah, you just go for your it. Yeah. How big of a long shot were you? Well, if you ask, uh, you know, Nate Silver, uh, I had a one in 50 chance. Um, terrible. But I really knew my district, and I knew that my district, eh, they can't stomach extremism. We're tired of that. And so I felt like in that, in that spectrum, it, it really, you know, I, I know my community, and, and I believe they would support me and be behind me. And so, okay, I was right. <laughs> Who lives in your community? Who are the people there? Yeah, so my community is the Columbia River Gorge, Skamania County, where I live, all the way out to the ocean, uh, Pacific County, so it's like seven counties, um, lots of rural, it's like five and a half hours or so to drive across it. Um, and then the city of Vancouver is probably the biggest city that uh, folks would have heard of, or Longview, Kelso, Centralia, yeah. And what you said, they want a tradesperson here in Congress. It, it, do most people work in the trades? And if so, what, what, is, what are the jobs? It's a variety. Uh, you know, it used to be a lot more logging and paper. Um, we've lost a lot of our mills, you know, with the rise of plastics um, and just like cheap overseas products. Like, it's been really hard with the reduction in thinning projects. Those things have all been crippling our paper and cardboard industries and our timber products. Um, which I think is a mistake, <laughs> um, you know, but we've got folks that work in all kinds of industries. We've got some tech, we've got um, Bonneville Power, you know, we've got a lot of fishing. We have one of the most fishing dependent uh, communities in the entire country, Pacific County, um, and Waco, so shellfish, salmon, um, you know, a lot of people who work for a living. You have a bumper sticker I read that says, if you're against logging, try plastic toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it comes from somewhere, right? You know, and, and you know, for most paper products, that is the, that's like the pulp. That is the um, byproducts or the thinning projects. It's not, you know, timber per se. But, you know, there is a role, and, and I think that we have been importing a lot of timber uh, from countries that have lower environmental standards, that means we are exporting our pollution, and that's a mistake. We need to reshore those jobs and make sure that they are family wage jobs uh, with appropriate environmental standards and, and, and bring back um, our you know, local economies. Where, do your democratic, where does your democratic philosophy come from? Yeah, so growing up I was actually a member of the Young Republicans and the Young Democrats. I went to both their meetings and uh, it wasn't until my brother came out as gay um, in college that I was like, wait a minute, like this is hurting people. This is not the right direction. 
And so, you know, um, I don't really identify myself as like a moderate, you know, I think that right, good ideas come from everywhere. You know, nobody's got a monopoly on the truth or reality. I think we all need to be in conversation. And so, like, I don't know how valuable labels are, but, um, you know, I really believe in the, in the social values of, of um, human dignity. What impact did your parents have on you and who you are today? Yeah, well, growing up, my dad was um, a pastor, uh, a lay pastor at a Bible church, and my mom you know, taught ESL. Um, my family is one that really believes in public service. My brother's a surgeon at the VA now. My sister does you know, nonprofit law. My other brother is a missionary. So, um, you know, and I believe that working in the trades is like a public service, right? Like you're, you know, you're enmeshed in your community. You're um, helping people get to work. You're working out when they can't make the, you know, the bill this month, right? Um, but so is being in Congress, and and I think like bringing that to Congress was really important to me, and and um, you know, just very fortunate to have had um, parents that really put public service in their community uh, forefront in their lives. What did your husband think when he said, I want to run for that seat? He, he had to think long and hard because he is a man that um, he really believes me when I say I'm going to do something. And so for him, it wasn't like, oh, she's just going to run. Like he always believed that I was going to win if I did it. And so he was, um, you know, he really took seriously the extra work that it was going to be for him. I mean, listen, like, he's homesick right now with my baby, you know? Like, it's really hard. Uh, it's, it's a sacrifice for him, and um, I'm really fortunate. And I take that seriously, right? Like, having so many people sacrifice for me to be here, like, that is so much more um, weight for me to be effective here and to use my time here prudently and effectively. How are you going to, or how have you decided you're going to balance your time here and time back oh. home? You have a long flight. Oh, it's a long flight, but it's so worth it to be home. I mean, I love my district. Like, Washington State, Southwest Washington, is unparalleled. Like, it is the most beautiful place in the world. And so it's so important for me to stay close to home and hear from my communities. Um, and, and, you know, it's a big district, like I said, so it's not like I'm just at home. Like, I'm trying to be out in the community as much as possible um, because I think that's what it takes to effectively represent the interests. On your determination to run, did I read right that when you decided you might do this, you sat down and Googled how to run for office? Yeah. Is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, I am somebody that like uses a spreadsheet for everything, right? So like there was a whole Google spreadsheet on like, you know, sort of the costs and benefits of running if I didn't win and running if I did win and what it would look like for my family. Um, and, you know, um, I'm not somebody that comes to this with, like, a lot of, like, political savvy, but I think that that is a huge asset, right? Like, when I fix a car, like, I can't talk someone into believing that I've fixed it. It actually has to be fixed, you know? So, like, that, I don't have a, a spin muscle, like, so I think that's actually an asset in being effective and candid. Republican Harriet Hageman spent years as a constitutional and natural resources attorney before winning her race to be Wyoming's sole U.S. House member in the 118th Congress. The fourth-generation Wyomingite told C-SPAN about her legislative goals and why she ran against a fellow Republican in the state's 2022 election. I replaced Liz Cheney. Why did you run against her? 
Well, Wyoming only has one congressional representative and we need to make it count. And for the last several years, Liz Cheney has not been representing Wyoming well. And she has been addressing issues that uh, frankly are not significant to Wyoming in light of the challenges that we do face. Uh, Wyoming is the largest coal producer in the nation. We have uh, huge oil and gas reserves, uh, large ag uh, pr production, lots of ag in, in the state of Wyoming. Those are issues that the current administration has, uh, has been attacking for quite some time. And Liz Cheney wasn't focusing on those issues, she was focusing on something else. And so we needed to have representation and I made the decision to run against her and to uh, retake Wyoming's lone congressional seat. Did you hear from her after you won the seat in November? Well, there was a bit of a snafu, I think. Her, um, uh, her uh, uh, party, uh, or whatever I guess you'd call it, her watch party was out in the country in Teton County. And I think that there must have been a technical issue. She called, but all she said was, hi, Harriet. And I, I do believe she probably left a message, but I never, I, I never received it. I was getting ready to go on with my watch party at the very time that she called. What were you doing before you ran for this seat? I am a water and natural resource and constitutional attorney. So I've been practicing law for going on 34 years, a trial attorney during most of that. The last couple of years, I have worked for a nonprofit law firm out of Washington, D.C., focused specifically on the issues of attempting to rein in the unlawful and unconstitutional administrative state. So I lived in Wyoming and telecommuted through much of that time, but worked on cases all over the United States, um, challenging the CDC's eviction moratorium, for example, challenging the EPA's uh, uh, taking uh, unconstitutional taking of property in Colorado when, when they blew out the Gold King mine uh, and destroyed the Animas River. So I did a lot of property rights work. I've done a lot of water work over the years. Uh, representing uh, a lot of natural resource issues, so representing farmers and ranchers, irrigation districts. Uh, I was involved in the Cargill case down in Texas. The, the Fifth Circuit came out just a couple of weeks ago on Cargill versus ATF, finding that ATF did not have the, the authority to declare bump stocks to be, um, uh, to be machine guns. So I've done a whole variety of cases, but it's mostly in the, it, lately in the constitutional arena, but for a long, long time in the water and natural resource arena. Born and raised in Wyoming? I was. And what about, about you says Wyoming? Well, I was, uh, I'm a fourth generation Wyomingite. My great grandfather came to Wyoming in 1878 on a cattle trail from Texas. And I grew up on a ranch outside of Fort Laramie and I went to Casper College on a livestock judging scholarship. And then I, that's a community college in the center part of the state. Then I went to the University of Wyoming where I received both my bachelor's degree and my law degree. Um, as I said, the kind of work that I have done representing all different kinds of, of organizations and businesses, uh, families in the state of Wyoming, protecting our, irrigated, our, our irrigation projects, uh, protecting our irrigation districts, our municipalities, working for ag, working for oil and gas, working for the resource producers. What I say is that I work for, the, for the, those people who put food on your table, gas in your car, and uh, roof over your head. What do you hope to accomplish in Congress? Well, there are several things. So I have been appointed to two, two committees. I'm on natural resources and judiciary. And I, there's going to be a very important oversight component to both of those committees. But I also have been very honored to be appointed on the uh, select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. 
With the work that I've done over the last 25 years especially, it's very clear that the federal government and federal agencies have really gone rogue. Uh, they have too, uh, too much power, too much money. Um, Congress is no longer uh, legislating. They've abdicated their responsibility and turned the legislative role over to a, a, unelected bureaucrats and administrative agencies. We need to turn that around. We are a republic. We're a representative form of government. We need to get back to our constitutional foundation so that the people that we put in positions, such as in Congress or in the state legislature or the presidency, that they're actually the ones that are making the decisions and are held accountable to the people. So so for me, I think it's going to be a very important oversight role of what these agencies are doing and the extent to which they are exceeding their scope and authority, uh, their legal authority to act. That's important. I also think it's important that we address the budget. We're at almost $32 trillion in debt. We're running out of runway. We've got to change where we're going in this country. We've got to get much, uh, we've got to get back on a, on a fiscal, uh, an appropriate fiscal track. And so there's, there's a lot of things that we need to do, but I think with the committees that I'm going to be working on, it's going to be making sure that we are energy independent, uh, that we were, are food independent, protecting our resource producers, and really trying to get the federal government out of people's lives. You can find all our interviews with new members of Congress at c-span.org slash congress hyphen new hyphen members.